All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our third class on John Gerhard's uh, meditation, The Desire for Eternal Life. Before we get, begin, let's start with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, well, as we have seen heretofore, Gerhard has led us on a meditation considering our longing in this life for various things and how that longing is to be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. The center of our longing, that for which our souls is des are designed, is the beatific vision, the blessed vision of seeing God face to face, as of knowing Him even as we ourselves are known. That is, if you'll kind of permit a little bit of an analogy, that's like the hub, and all these other blessings are like spokes that come from that hub. So we talked about beauty, we talked about activity and physical strength, we talked about a healthful life, and then, of course, right in the center, that idea of satisfaction in God alone. We talked as well about music, holy, pure and holy pleasures, wisdom, friendship, Christian fellowship, the peace we'll experience when all of God's children scattered throughout the denominations were finally at peace with each other, power, honor, and riches, and security. All of these things come, and at the very bottom of page 268, we meet this kind of thesis and climax, bottom of page 268, three lines up, whatever the elect can possibly long for, they shall find to their infinite satisfaction, for then shall they see him face to face, who is all and in all. Now again, Gerhard points us to the brevity of this life and the eternal nature of this life before God, seeing him in the beatific vision. The more we let that soak into us, the more accurately we're going to perceive reality. The reality of God, the reality of ourselves, the reality of the brevity of this life. We are going to increasingly, in the fear of the Lord, become wise unto the temporary nature of these present afflictions, sufferings, the kind of brokenness of the world, and here I mean a, a kind of brokenness in terms of how it all works, it doesn't work. You know, it's like when you're young and you have energy to do all this stuff, you have no money. Then you get, maybe, maybe then you get the money and you've got no energy. I mean, there are countless things like this that we all realize. Um, you know, if you have children when you're young, you can get up in the middle of the night, but you've got no maturity to lead them, and so you regret that. You have children when you're old, 
You can't get up with them in the night. <laughs> they hurt you when you wrestle. Um, even then, but then you have some wisdom and some maturity. So nothing seems to quite line up the way it should. And maybe one of the one of the biggest lies and, and deceits that we have in our particular time and place in this particularly affluent time and place is this idea that retirement is utopia on earth. Is it? <laughs> I know that already. I know that already. Because the retired people aren't immune from the kinds of things I see throughout the entire body of Christ. In fact, they're even more susceptible. More susceptible to, uh, well, even just something like falling ill. But deeper questions of like, well, what was the meaning? What was the purpose of all that? I, I've been so busy for so many decades raising kids, making a life that I haven't even had time to ask myself. Now, finally, I do. Maybe they're away for college. Maybe they're married off. Finally, I do. And I don't know what it was all for. And I feel lost again. <laughs> of course, if you're swimming with children up to your neck, maybe you can't wait to feel lost like that. <laughs> but that just goes that just goes to our condition. It kind of goes also to this grass is always greener on the other side. I can't wait till I'm retired. I can't wait till I'm retired. Boom, I'm retired. I wish I was back raising children. Those are the good old days. <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? So when I when I say when I say broken, that's really what I'm talking about. Creation never ever since the fall, creation never lines up the way it's supposed to. Life never lines up the way it's supposed to. And so what we're longing for is a longing for that wholeness once more. We're longing for creation to be in harmony, for all the notes to be in the right place and everything to come together in the beautiful ways that what's so frustrating right now is we can glimpse it. We know what it should be like, but we can't attain it. And I mentioned to you that this is really a rather beautiful and profound kind of argument. It's kind of, it's an argument from natural theology. Nothing wrong with that at all. St. Paul writes that by natural revelation, we all know that there is a creator. We know his attributes and we're without excuse if we turn our backs on him. So no problem with natural revelation and just looking around at creation and seeing these things, um, seeing, seeing not only that these things aren't functioning properly, but that there's something within me that thinks that they should. I mean, if we're all just highly evolved apes, which that's arguable anyway, but highly evolved apes, you know, out here on this spinning orb in the middle of nowhere, why on earth would we ever have this idea that it all makes sense, that, that it somehow should all fit together, that these things are things that should be fulfilled? Why do we experience this sense of longing for what isn't when we should just go, oh, I don't know, it's just the way the world is, accept it. Not one of us feels that way. And that's a great apologetic for there, in fact, being a God, being a designer and a creator. Tangentially, isn't it interesting that the scientific method as a subset of human reason or as a kind of, of specific reasoning by which we discern truths about the natural world, isn't it interesting that what it finds within the natural world is logical, is scientific. Why? Why would it be? 
And why would we have this innate sense within us, this ability to discover? So here's a question. What's a, what's a logical thing, a completely and perfectly logical thing that people always fail to understand in one way, shape, or form? The whole of creation. It's already a perfectly logical thing, and so we approach that with our reason, our quote-unquote scientific method, and we discover certain we discover certain aspects of the rationality of the universe, and then we find that it doesn't make sense. Do we then say to ourselves, "Ah, the tool's broken. No, no more to find here." No, we simply say. Reason itself tells us that we don't have the adequate tools. We must continue to test and explore and discover. And then lo and behold, what do we do? We have a paradigm shift in our reason and we see the world more as it is. Is it less logical? Never. It's always perfectly logical. It's we who are illogical. Why on earth would it be that way if there was not a creator? And so too, then, we infer that if all of science is based on a logical cosmos, the one who has that ability to create a cosmos logically most certainly could have created that cosmos without any brokenness, without any misalignment, without any of these things we so commonly experience. Indeed, this is, this is maybe one of the most foolish things about thinking that you as a Christian, in order to be intelligent and wise here in the 21st century, you must accept theistic evolution or something like that. I mean, that would tacitly deny that God has the power to create a world without death. We can't even conceive of that because of what science in a fallen world has told us and various assumptions that we've made within that fallen world, various assumptions we've made about the nature of the world as it presently is, and we've taken certain elements of, of how the world presently is, and we've inferred that back. Why have we done that? I don't know. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. Are you sure? Who told you that? Not the scientific method. You've just made a religious leap without knowing it. We need to get back to a sense of, of the, the transcendent nature of God who could literally make all of it work. And who indeed did. That's how he ordered the world before it fell apart. He indeed did make all of it work. Born of life, born of beauty, born of truth, born of all of these things we find in the scriptures from the very beginning. So what is the, what, what is the biblical proof text for all of this? I'm not sure you need one if I'm going to be ornery about it, and I kind of like to be ornery. Uh, but if you do need it, how about Genesis? How about the garden? How about the all the language in the scripture about the beauties and glories of the new heavens and the new earth. And the scriptures decide, describe this in ways that embrace all five of our senses, that embrace our memories, our intellects, and our will, our emotion, and all we are as creatures of God. The scriptures describe all of this richly. So I might say Genesis, um, and I might say Revelation. Have at it. You'll find proof texts for all of these things as if you needed them. Because these things aren't really part of the special revelation of Christ. That he comes 
to redeem, that he comes to buy back, that he comes to make all things new, is inferred that all of these things will find their telos and climax in him. There's continuity. It's not, it's not the old earth followed up by the new quark, which is a liquid universe, and we'll all be semi-fluid beings quarking around in the quark. No! There is particular continuity between earth now and the new earth. Heaven now and the new heaven. You see, there's continuity, not discontinuity. The same is true with our bodies. Do we get raised from the dead as six-headed centipedes? Because everything's new? No, we get raised from the dead in our bodies because there's continuity between the old and the new. And so we can then see and understand how special revelation of Scripture wed with the natural revelation of enlightened minds subject to the Word of God, we can piece together all these things without needing to do like chapter and verse theology. And I think you can see that even in, even in, um, Gerhard's opening pages here, where there are a couple smatterings of scriptural references, but not a whole lot, because he expects this to simply be intuitive, understood. So, Bottom of 268, one final comment on this. Whatever the elect, I think that this is a nice little little limiting uh, factor here. Whatever the elect can possibly long for. This is akin to Jesus promises that our prayers in his name will be answered. You can't exactly ask for a cadre of Ferraris in his name. In the name of him who, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes that we might become rich in his righteousness. Kind of missing the point. Kind of antithetical to Christ. To be like, nah, never mind all these other things. I need about 17 Ferraris. Um, So too then, it's whatever the elect can possibly long for. That is, when our minds are one with the mind of God, our wills one with his will. What do we long for? What do we wish for? And that we shall shall surely and certainly find. And then again, as we see all the spokes leading to that hub to see God face to face, that is the heaven of heavens, the joy of joys, and to see him who is all and in all, that is to simultaneously behold the face of God and then see the face and behold the face of God in all things. Okay, we touched on a few other things, um, a little bit, a little bit overlap, just some different paradigms of thought on 269. Eternal health of the body, the greatest purity of the soul, this holistic healing of us in body and in soul. We especially focused on the soul because it's not as if the body just gets a makeover in the resurrection. Our souls, even upon death, receive a makeover. And we will be more ourselves entering heaven than we ever were here on earth tainted by sin. It's one, of the, it's one of the reasons that we can be certain that we know we will see our loved ones in heaven and know them even better than we know them now. What obscures us from knowing things as they are right now objectively to know as God knows? Sin. 
Sin distorts our ability to know others. Sin distorts our ability to know ourselves. Sin distorts ourselves, uh, distorts our ability to be ourselves and to relate to others as we would. Imagine sin all wiped away. Do our relationships become more distant or more intimate? Instantly more intimate. Instantly we look and perceive and know. There's an analogy to this, how Adam in the garden could simply look at the animals, know their nature, and aptly, properly name them. There's a remnant of this in fathers naming their children. This is your identity. This is your character as part of the family line. And there's a sense in which this is referenced in... um, Revelation as well, quite possibly, with this idea of the name, the the hidden or secret name that God gives to you. Now, it's an allusion to baptism, but I think it's more than that. Not only are you born of water and the Spirit, not only are you God's child, but there's a sense in which He names you for all eternity. He gives you true identity for all eternity. You know, what happens, I, you know, what happens if you're, uh, you're born to foolish parents on earth and they name you some terrible name? Like Sue. <laughs> a boy named Sue, maybe. Um, are you going to be Sue for all eternity because your dad was a jerk? And this, this kind of hints at this reality of like, no, God is your true father. He gives you your true name. That is your true identity. If you sort of reverse it, You know God via His name. Name is identity. And so we come to know God via His name. Then He, flipping it, is the one who names us and names all things. Okay, So our identities um, are going to be, we will be more ourselves than ever before. There's going to be this transformation of our souls, a greatest purity of soul. All right, and then we talked about a blessed society and all the freedoms that that entails to simply be in the world without having to guard yourself constantly from all the world's nonsense, without being filled with disgust at all the world's depravity, without being being filled with guilt and consternation over our own participation in the world. No longer have to be in the world but not of it. We can be in the world and of the world (laughs) because the world will be purified. All right, and then last but not least, we touched on different degrees of glory and how we can look forward to this. We can look forward to not all being cookie-cutter robots for all eternity. I love this distinction. It's a distinction of our church fathers. There will be no difference in degrees of bliss there will be difference in degrees of glory. What does that mean? We're all surrounded by God. It's not like you're going to be like, hey, I'm kind of lacking up here. Heaven's a little bit of a letdown. No, we're all complete. Our cups completely overflow with bliss. And yet, we'll be able to say, look at that cup over there. That's St. Paul. God be praised. Did he not say that he was beaten many times within an inch of his life? Hated, despised, mocked, stoned, ridiculed, imprisoned, beheaded. There he is. Look at him. There's not, there's not, I mean, even right now in our, in our completely egotistical selves, we can envision that and not be envious. 
even now to our the differences in gifts it's like hey i can appreciate that in someone else i'm kind of okay with not having it myself even now we're like that and we're completely egotistical how much more then i mean even now i can be like stephen mans he knows the languages inside and out i don't even want to be able to do that <laughs> not like him <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so even now we can already see differences in, in glory. We can see a splendid diversity amongst the saints. We see a splendid diversity amongst the angels. You think there's little angels up there flying around being like, ah, I can't believe I got fated to be a little angel. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Everyone is filled to the brim with bliss and giving thanks to God for the different glories that we see. Okay, I saw a hand popping up, so let's, um, do we have a microphone today? We have some folks on vacation, so. Thank you. I was just thinking, last week I had this thought after Bible class that heaven, it's like a custom-built house, because if you look at the uh, tiny the tiny little houses that they're building, but they're perfect because they're custom made. And then you look at a mansion, which is also custom made, but they're all custom made and everything in between. They're all beautiful and they're perfect for what you want, but they're not all big or they're not all pretty, but they're custom made, you yeah, know, and yeah. it's, I'm hoping that's how I'll feel in heaven. Yeah, I think so. I think, so. I th I think it's, yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be better than we think in that in that regard. I've kind of, you know, you just let your mind wander and just kind of free flow. And, you know, it's not very serious theology. It's just kind of ponderous theology, which maybe means it is serious. I don't know. Um, but but as you as you're deeply considering these things and thinking over these things, as I've thought about heaven, like imagine that God says, OK, here's your house for all eternity. What do you want it to look like? You pick. <laughs> you know. And see, I think that's the beauty. Like, now expand that out over everything. What, like, if somebody said to you, what do you want to look like for the rest of eternity? Who oh, no. <laughs> you pick. You know, this is the joy, is that even if, for the saints, even if God gave into our hands, here, you want to be like gods, you want to create, you want to choose, you want to do everything, what would we say? No! <laughs> No, it's so much better coming from you. I trust you and your wisdom infinitely more than I trust my own. You make me as you would have me be. You glorify me as you would have me be glorified. You humble me as you would have me humbled. Um, you, you have me fit in the great economy of salvation, the great economy of your family in whatever way you choose. I am thankful to even be a doorman and the house of the Lord <laughs> that to sit on the throne in the house of Satan you know isn't that true so there's a sense in which like what does custom mean I don't know God you figure it out <laughs> please uh, I had a little different take and maybe it's complimentary to what you were saying about whatever the elect can possibly long for they shall find in their to their infinite satisfaction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what it seemed to me I'm a guy and so I'm going to I'm going to kind of pull the lid off on something. Sorry, Careful guys. now, careful. I think about sex a lot because I'm a guy. And right. I've actually reflected on a lot of this. And it seems to me, just as an example, that right, even sexual perversions are aiming at something. Mm -hmm. They're aiming at, and this is my opinion about it, is they're aiming at the total surrender of the self to the beloved. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And most sex, I think most sexual perversions are about this, right? The, you, this is what you're actually longing for. Mm-hmm. Now, does the perversion, whatever it is, actually satisfy that? No, mm-hmm. not at all, right? In fact, you know, people who get involved in this end up regretting it or not, you know, just not feeling satisfied and seeking sure. more and more and more and just falling deeper and deeper into a pit because they're doing it their own way. Mm-hmm. But in heaven... I think we will experience the complete surrender of the self to the beloved. Yeah, right. Right? And and the lover's surrender of himself to us. You know, it that's going to be that's going to be there. So in some sense even though it's you you, you want to say is heaven a place where the, where people will right experience all their perverse desires? No. No. But it's what they really were longing for. Right. Will be satisfied. Right. Yeah, you're actually on very safe ground. Uh, Christians for many, many centuries, probably, well, in fact, I do know much longer than that, have meditated on the nature of eros, if you will, and what, what that eros teaches us. Obviously, obviously it teaches us much about our fallen state, much about our inability, our incontinence, right? Our inability to be chased and to, but, but does that mean that that desire, as you know, as you described it, or eros could be defined in some other ways too, whether it's full submission to another or longing for that oneness or that intimacy or that nakedness, that freedom. Um, however you want to look at it, there is a long history within the tradition of eros being redeemed. And we have to kind of remove from our minds carnal thoughts, um, procreative kinds of thoughts, um, because the scriptures tell us definitively there's not going to be procreation. We're going to be like the angels in that we don't conceive children and that kind of thing. But what earthly marriage is for is for the, and, and that's the proper context for Eros, right? And what that's for is showing forth and revealing the love of Christ and his church. So the climactic book from which all of this flows is, of course, Song of Songs. I'm not mature enough to read through Song of Songs yet. I think, can't remember how old. Does anyone remember how old you have to be? Is it 50? Oh, it's 30? Oh. I could have been reading it all these years. Oh. Uh, Yeah, but this is, I mean, this is the idea of, of Eros properly ordered, right? That desirous love that in and of itself is good with all its different facets and aspects, properly and rightly ordered and experienced. Yeah. Yeah, so we long for that. We look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, that book, too, factors large. This is another uh, aspect. I've, sometimes people say to me, like, well, what do you, ha- you want to study? What things would you like to look into or know? This is one. The early church grabbed the, the of all books, of all books, the, the Song of Songs as one of their fundamental catechetical texts. I, I love it. I love it because it shows that all of our doctrine and practice is love. It's love for he who loved us first. And it's properly and best understood in that relationship of love, in that reality, if you will, of love. Yeah. Great question and comment. Yeah. Any, um, any other thoughts? Okay, let's motor along. So, very bottom of 269 for all of an entire line before we go over to 270. On this life's journey, we have Christ 
with us constantly, but veiled to our sight under the word and sacraments. Here's the now and not yet of the beatific vision. <laughs> the big not yet that we can't see him. There is no vision. And yet we apprehend him by faith. So that's where we find ourselves now. Faith then is going to go away. I can't wait. I mean, I know that sounds impious. <laughs> I can't wait until someone, I'm up in heaven, who knows how many ten thousands of ten thousands years, like the hymn goes, and someone goes, hey, remember by faith alone? Oh yeah, I remember that. Because faith is that promise unfulfilled. I'm joking, I'm exaggerating. I, I don't think faith's going to disappear like that. We'll talk about faith all the time. Um, we'll talk about hope all the time. We'll see faith fulfilled, hope fulfilled, love fulfilled. But that's the joy, is that these things are temporary. Okay. So he is with us, Christ is with us, veiled to our sight under the word and sacraments. And of course, here we chiefly have in mind baptism and the Lord's Supper, because these are the sacraments through which the scriptures say we have forgiveness of sins. And so those really are the sacraments, properly speaking. Gerhard continues, we cannot hear, know him by actual sight and touch of his blessed body, but in that future life we shall see him face to face. Isn't that a beautiful idea? That you will see Jesus face to face. I, there's just something incredible about the earthiness of that, that with your eyeballs... You will see his eyeballs, and with his eyeballs, he will see you. And it's just something. You will literally, as his disciples did, be able to trace your fingers on the wounds in his hands by which he bought you. Can you think of anything better? Can you possibly think of anything better? So this is a, this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. We shall see him face to face. When at his own table in the heavenly kingdom... He distributes to us that bread of life that shall perfectly satisfy our hungry souls. Okay, so here too, we, we see that the Lord's Supper, while it is the telos of this age and the, the peak of everything in this age, even that is a kind of type and foreshadowing for the fullness of communion we'll have with Jesus. You can think of the marital image inherent in Holy Communion. How there's a kind of oneness that takes place as Christ gives us his very body and blood. You know, all earthly food, you eat it and the food becomes you. Heavenly food, you eat it and you become it. Higher food, you eat it and you partake of the body and so you become the body of Christ. You partake of his blood, and so your life is his life. We're transformed. And so he is the head and we are the body. Now this, this all is a kind of foreshadowing, hinting, speaking of that unity, that true communion that we will have with Christ that really is definitive of the essential blessing that is heaven. 
Thus, our hungry souls are finally and perfectly satisfied by him and by what he gives. Continuing on, just as the two disciples knew him, not by the way, but recognized him as he sat at meat and break bread with them. You remember the road to Emmaus and the revelation of Christ there. So Christ reveals himself to us, and yet not in a way we can see him as they saw him. But we shall see him. He was seen and then disappears. Now he's not we cannot see him, he's disappeared, and then we shall see. There's a kind of beautiful symmetry. They saw him, he was gone, he's gone, but we will see him. The heavenly city, the holy Jerusalem, has within it no temple made with hands, nor has it need of the sun or of the moon, quote, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of of it. Revelation 21, 22. Quoting just the next verse, and the glory of the Lord did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Remember that hymn, the Lamb is the light of the city of God, shine in my heart, Lord Jesus. Beautiful hymn, right out of Revelation. I did not like that hymn in my ignorance because I thought it was a little shine, Jesus, shine. How foolish I was. It's literally Revelation. It was in one of these times, one of these 15 times I've studied Revelation with you, at least it feels that way, that it dawned on me, oh, such a glorious hymn. It's expressing this exact reality. Okay, here we go. Their, gl their glorious vision shall succeed faith. So look what's happening. Faith has gone away. It's now by sight. Actual enjoyment shall succeed hope. Hope goes away because it's fulfilled with actual enjoyment. And perf perfect fruition, perfect realization, perfect fruitfulness shall succeed love. It's a really interesting take. Um, I don't think we have to pin Gerhard down too tightly on this. I mean, love endures forever because God is love. And insofar as we are made in his image, we become, in a creaturely way, love. The reflection of his love. We love because he first loved us. So we don't need to get too, like, you know, dogmatic here. But the point is that faith will have its fulfillment in vision. Hope will have its fulfillment in enjoyment, and love will have its fulfillment in perfect realization. So these three great virtues. You know, at the root of virtue is the word veer, man, to be a human being, rightly ordered in this life, the highest of those, of those ways in which we can be rightly ordered, faith, hope, and love. And of course, St. Paul says the greatest of these is love. Particularly because, I mean, I mean, particularly because faith is yours and hope is yours. I mean, faith and hope happen here. It's love that takes that and confesses that faith, shows forth that hope, serves neighbor with word and deed. It's love that makes all of that meaningful for 
um, for the body of Christ. And so the greatest of these is, is love, no doubt about it. Um, but look, look, faith, hope, and love, that is the height of what it means to be man. And we can see this most explicitly when we look at Jesus. Remember the great, the great thing that Pilate does for us? Echi homo. Behold the man. And that image after Jesus has been scourged, after they've pressed the, the crown of thorns upon his head with sticks, after they've beaten him and slapped him, mocked him, spit in his face, wrapped in the robe of mockery, crowned with thorns, scourged within an inch of his life, standing there probably in bodily shock on his way toward death, on his way toward complete bodily failure, receiving the scorn of Jew and Gentile alike. What is his attitude? Faith, hope, and love. He's on the cross, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? True. But my God, my God. It's faith. Perfect love for neighbor. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And what is that hope? Into your hands I commend my spirit. You, Father, are my hope. You will resurrect me. My trust, my hope, my love are in you. So faith, hope, and love, those essential, those most important of all virtues are found in the veer, the man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his image that we are being conformed into in this life. Okay, continuing, in the building of Solomon's temple, there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard. So in the heavenly Jerusalem, neither pain nor tribulation shall be experienced because the materials for this temple, that is, its spiritual stones, i.e. us, that's um, 1 Peter 2.5, that by virtue of our baptism, we have become spiritual stones, have all been prepared beforehand in the world through sorrow and tribulation. I love this. Here is the place where we are being chiseled and shaped and formed and baked in the fire so that we're adamantine, so that we're hard as rocks, literally. And yet we're not dead, we're alive. We're living stones now and forever. But here is the place in which we're being forged and shaped to be unique parts of that everlasting temple of God in the new heavens and the new earth. It's such a beautiful image and gives such meaning and value to the sufferings and afflictions we experience in this life. Even if we don't understand them, guess who does? God. Guess who's working all things for our good? Guess who is shaping and forming us into an eternal weight of glory through these very things? Our Father. So we look upon Him in and what, what the Scriptures say He is doing, and we entrust ourselves to Him, realizing that we are a new creation that He is forming even now unto an eternal weight of glory. I love this imagery. Continuing, the visit of the queen of Sheba to Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 10, may set forth a redeemed soul's hastening towards Christ in the heavenly Jerusalem. It comes with a great train of holy angels with diverse virtues as its gifts of gold and precious stones. Isn't that beautiful? 
as the Queen of Sheba with her great big entourage came to Christ, so does the redeemed soul hasten toward Christ in the heavenly Jerusalem, coming with a great train of angels, diverse virtues as gifts of gold and precious stones. It wonders at the wisdom of Christ the King, at the ranks of His servants, that is, the angels and redeemed saints, at the food of His table, that is, the abundance of that eternal repast He spreads before them, at their glorious apparel, that is, the beauty and grace of their glorified bodies, at the splendor of His house, that is, the magnitude and magnificence of the heavenly palace, at the sacrifices offered up, that is, the unceasing ascriptions of praise that rise to Him. You know, that's the beautiful thing in Revelation, the temple of God. It, it, has, no, it has no blood sacrifice um, in Revelation. The only sacrifice going on are the hymns and prayers, the chant and song, the worship. Finally, one acceptable sacrifice enters at the ascension of Jesus, the Lamb who comes, who alone is worthy to open the seals, who stands before the throne as a Lamb, as one having been slain, and yet standing. That's the only bloody sacrifice, the only atoning sacrifice in all of God's heavenly temple, in that temple which is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. So all the rest is thanksgiving and praise, hymn and song. Just picking up midway, about where we left off, the unceasing ascriptions of praise that rise to him. And in amazement, the soul will confess that it could not have believed as possible what its eyes now behold. Such a great line. Such a great line. Our problem is not that we're here overshooting the moon. Our problem is not that, well, Pastor Rody told us all these things, then we went up in the heaven and we got disappointed. <laughs> it's that Pastor Rody didn't tell you enough. It's that Gerard, with his brilliant light, could only shine so far. It's more than we can even conceive or imagine or speak. Such a glorious point he makes. A little bit further. Take courage then. O faithful soul, and turn thy thought to those good things that are laid up in heaven for thee. Thy spirit ought even now direct itself whither thou wilt by and by go. In time we must strive towards that place where we are to abide through all eternity. That is, now is the time for striving. Now is the time for action. Now is the time to seek those things which are above and live our lives accordingly. Again, the, the sort of in the background is just how short and free, fleeting this life is compared to that life which is to come. How short and fleeting these afflictions and sufferings are compared to the glories that are to be revealed. So take courage. Be assured he will not enter into the glory of his Lord who has no desire for it. Oh, beautiful statement. 
So, if you desire not the Lord, if you desire the things of the earth more than the things of heaven, repent. Repent, or you'll get exactly what you want. I mean, that's Gerhard's point here, rhetorically. Thou hopest sometime to appear in the presence of God. Strive after holiness then, for he himself is holy. Thou art looking forward to the companionship of the angels in heaven. See to it then that thou repel not their gentle ministries now by thy sin. Thou hopest to enjoy eternal blessedness after a while. Why then desire so ardently the good things of this life now? We recall, of course, what it is that makes the angels in heaven rejoice. Repentance. Repentance. The repentant soul. That is a marvel and a miracle to them. And indeed it should be to us as well. Thou art seeking citizenship in heaven. Why then desire so greatly a continuing city here? <coughs> Politics. We can only care about them so much. It's true. I mean, they may be of the utmost importance in terms of the left-hand kingdom, but guess how long we're here in the left-hand kingdom? If by reason of strength, 80 years. That's it. That's it. They're not that important. Guess who the true king is? Christ. Always has been. Always will be. We don't need to get that wound up in it. So don't be looking for a continuing city here. We're seeking a citizenship in heaven. Thou art longing to see thy Savior Christ. Why then fear death? Ooh, totally easier said than done, right? But it's so true. Death has been turned into the gate of eternal life. I mean, that's what's so insane about... I mean, if this pandemic had like a 50% mortality rate or something like that, would we Christians have uh, need to fear? No. Death has been transformed into the gate of eternal life. This life with all its riches are, are scraps compared to that life which is to come. Our life is hidden with God in Christ. I mean, these are things for us to just remember. Whether, you know, again, I, I mean, all of the rest is, frankly, insignificant details. Insignificant details viewed from this angle of, like, whether you wore a mask or not, or vaccined or not, or, you know, coward in fear or not, or whatever you did. Um, our life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. It kind of renders all these things silly. By worrying, we can't add a single hour to our lives. But by, but by donning the right clothing, we can. By injecting ourselves with the right substance, we can. I mean, no. Now, true enough, we want to be good stewards and all of that. I'm not dismissing it, and yet I am dismissing it. Because why? It's good for this life only. And if this life only is all you have, you really have cosmic scraps. You really have what the devil has done is just shattered God's creation and said, here, enjoy the scraps. Be pleased with the shattered glass. Desire that more than you desire God. Desire that more than you desire heaven. To which we say, no thanks. No thanks. I'll take God in heaven. Thou art longing to see thy Savior Christ. Why then fear death? He rightly fears death, who fears to go into the presence of Christ. Thou art also to... Yeah, I mean, 
<laughs> Why do we fear death? It's going to hurt. It's going to be unknown. I love what Gerhard does here. He's like, no! Because you're going to face Christ, the living God in human flesh. <laughs> the one whose eyes are lit with flames and revelation. That's why you, that's the only reason to fear death. And it's a pious reason. Because you fear not him who can destroy the body only, Satan. You fear him who can destroy both body and soul eternally in hell, our Lord Jesus, our true judge. And so we come to him trembling in fear, knowing our unworthiness, and yet also receiving him in faith. Receiving he who is love with that perfect love that finally casts out all fear. But I love that. What are you, what are you afraid? I want to, I want to die. You know, what do people say? I want to, I want to die in my sleep. Why? Because you're more afraid of the, of death than you are of facing the living God? <laughs> I mean, do you see what Gerhard's doing? It's really masterful. It's really masterful. Why are we afraid of death? Oh, it's going to hurt. I hope I get hit by a semi and don't even know what happened. I don't know. You only die once. You sure you don't want to experience it? You sure you don't want to confess Christ over and against the power of death? You sure you don't want to kind of like, you know, Make a little mockery of it. Swallow me, if you will. You've been swallowed up, O death, by Christ, my Savior. You've been destroyed already. I don't need to fear you. Sure, you don't want to make a good confession against it? You might not get the choice. Lots and lots of Christians God calls to make the good confession against death. They see it coming, and they are steadfast. I'm not afraid of that. If I'm going to be afraid of anything, I'll be afraid of Christ. And even then, afraid of Him with the kind of fear that casts out fear. The kind of fear that casts out all other fears and leaves me steadfast and safe and secure and that Lion of Judah who isn't tame, but he's very, very good. Well, we'll pick up next Sunday. The Lord be with you.